0: 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, picking up where we left off last week at verse 13, and I will read through the end of the chapter. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification, by the Spirit, and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm, and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word, or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for access into your presence to acknowledge you as Father, from the position of being your sons and your daughters all through the death and resurrection of Christ, which was your plan from eternity. Thank you for the role that the church plays in the unfolding of our salvation. Thank you for the time that you have designed for the church to set aside to read portions of your word to explain it connect it apply it for the building up of the members here and for the accomplishing of our mission in the world that you've placed us in so we come to the next 40 minutes or so with that mindset, that this portion of time that we're devoting to the sermon, like every week, no matter who speaks, is crucial. We place an immense weight upon it, because it is your word, and it's you using your word as it comes through explanation and illustration and application through human beings by which you accomplish your will and your people. So we we come to this time of prayer believing that that happens each week and that will again happen this week. So we offer this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. want to be as, as simple and really as obvious as we can be in how we walk through our text this morning. It that, that, that is the goal every week just to state it uh, like that. probably doesn't always unfold that way, but I, I really want to intentionally be um, ultra simple and obvious this morning. A, as obvious as this, just look at the first word in our text this morning. First word, Of verse 13, it is the word, but. That is a a contrast word. It's there on the one hand to keep us connected to where we were last week, which was verse 11, which taught us that God sends those who refuse to love the truth and who choose in the place of the truth to love and embrace and believe The lie of Satan and those who do his bidding. God sends them, verse 11, a strong delusion so that they may continue to believe what is false. In order that, verse 12, they and all who do not believe the truth but take pleasure in unrighteousness may be condemned. And Paul's message to his readers, whom he loves last week and all throughout the Thessalonian epistles, is don't follow them. Don't let yourselves be deceived by the antichrists that are around you, among you, and out to intentionally deceive you. Keep believing in Christ. Keep loving the truth. And now in our text this morning, he's saying, and give thanks to God that you've been rescued from your own refusal to love the truth to where you now stand in Christ. Because that contrast is due entirely to his mercy toward you. The contrast between last week's warning text And this week's text is ultimately between God's justice and his mercy. Justice towards those who refuse to love the truth and be saved. Mercy towards those God chooses to rescue from taking pleasure in unrighteousness and happily refusing to love the truth. When the Apostle Paul rehearses justice... It's in the context of warning and pleading. Again, it's don't be deceived. God is just. Those who refuse to love the truth will be condemned forever. But when he rehearses mercy, as he will do in our text this morning, it either leads to or is prefaced by sincere, thankful praise towards God. So if we can just assign the appropriate response to warnings about God's justice, it is fear. Don't be deceived. Keep believing. But if we can assign the appropriate response to God's mercy, it is thankfulness and praise. And as we will see, it's not presumptuous or passive thankfulness and praise, but it's active, steadfast, faithful thankfulness, and and praise. Our passage this morning is, is deeply theological, but it is equally practical. As what he rehearses here cannot help but overflow once it settles in the hearts of those who hear it and understand. And that's actually the way that Paul opens up our passage this morning in verse 13. He says... But we ought always to give thanks for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. That language sounds familiar to you. It is because it is almost word for word what he said back in chapter 1 and verse 3. Let me remind you of that verse. He opens the letter by saying, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly and your love for one another is increasing. And just like we tried to clarify back then, the obligation to give thanks that he mentions here, just like there, is not cold duty obligation, but warm, delightful, overflowing, obvious obligation. His acknowledgement in verse 13 of the, um, for lack of a better term, the obligatory nature of thanksgiving from God's people, it's meant to highlight the natural overflow in all who are the recipients of the mercy that he goes on to describe here. And notice something in our passage. This isn't Paul's overflowing with thanksgiving in reference to himself. Or the mercy that he was shown. Not despising it. He he does that elsewhere absolutely in passages like 1 Timothy chapter 1. But here he's overflowing with thanksgiving and praise as he thinks about God's mercy toward others. Others who've been made his brothers and sisters by the same mercy that made him a son. And so I actually, I actually want to read to you that section of 1 Timothy 1 because the two passages are, are just so similar. The one being a personal reflection on God's mercy in Paul's own life as he just looks into the mirror of his own story. The other, which is our text, being a reflection as he looks out, at least out in his mind and memory at God's mercy on a body of redeemed people. So listen to Paul's warm, delightful overflow in his reflection on God's mercy toward him personally. This is just 1 Timothy chapter 1, very similar text from a personal perspective. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though Formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So it's a lot to take in. And I want to keep reading, but you have to just stop there and process for a moment. He says grace and love mercifully overflowed from God toward me while I was a blasphemer. While I was a persecutor. While I was an insolent opponent. Reflect back on our text in 2 Thessalonians from last week. He says they refuse to love the truth so that they may be saved. Paul says, I was happily a blasphemer and persecutor and an insolent opponent. And I was not looking for a way out of that at all. But if you read his words, he actually thought that he was doing God a service in the process of that. When God's mercy appeared to him in the way that he describes here unsolicited on the road to Damascus and all you have to do to do what Paul does there is insert your own dirt you are happily a rebellious self-centered willfully deceived despiser of truth at whatever age or stage of life you were when God mercifully stepped into your life And opened your blind eyes and regenerated your dead heart and gave you the grace and the faith that now marks you as his. Paul goes on to say in 1 Timothy 1, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe on him for eternal life. Just summarize that in one statement. Here's what he says. God was merciful toward me so that he would display the perfections of Christ in what he's done in me and for me. So where does all of that reflection go for Paul? That personal reflection on his own sin and on God's mercy toward him. It goes the same place that it will now go in our text in 2 Thessalonians as he now reflects on God's mercy toward the believing church to whom he wrote while others all around them remain defiant in refusing to love the truth for the sake of a lie his reflection leads to praise in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17 here's how he ends that reflection to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That is Paul's personal equivalent to the corporate nature of 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. He says, we ought to give thanks To God, always for you, brothers. And he goes on to describe his brothers now as the beloved of the Lord. The believing church is the beloved of the Lord, no longer his enemies. And what Paul praises in our passage this morning is not what any of the Thessalonians did to change their standing from enemies to beloved. But what he goes on to praise is the work of God in them and on their behalf to change their standing. So let's walk through this rehearsal with them. And let's pray that it produces in us the same overflowing, warm, delightful praise as well as the same active, steadfast faith as it was meant to do For the original readers. Our passage really is two sections. It's verse 13 and 14. And then verses 15 through 17. Verses 13 to 14. Rehearse in order and in detail. God's mercy toward those he calls his beloved. And grounds our thankfulness there. In what God has done. Verses 15 through 17 proceed to call us beyond thankfulness to faithfulness based upon God's mercy. So if I could challenge you to see the beginning and the end of this short passage as appropriate, right, warm, delightful, obligatory. Those terms not being contradictory, warm, delightful, obligatory, not contradictory. Responses toward the mercy that's described in between them in the heart of our passage. If we could process our passage that way, I think we might be well on our way to um, grasping it. Knowing where our thankfulness is grounded and knowing from where our faithfulness flows which is God's mercy toward us, his beloved church. The right way to understand beloved in verse 13 is in coordination with what Paul says next. And it's provable grammatically, but it's equally as provable by just coordinating the two phrases. So here it is. But we ought to give thanks to God always for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you, the ESV reads, as the first fruits to be saved. But if you have any other translation other than the ESV, you probably find something like God has chosen you from the beginning to salvation. Which most people accept as the preferred reading, including myself. So, beloved by the Lord locates God's love toward his people in his free choice in eternity to save them. God's people are his beloved from eternity. His choice to save them before they were ever born was his free choice to love them in Christ in eternity. And this doesn't minimize the sinful state in which any of us were born or the legitimate danger we were in before he saved us. All of that was very real and very threatening. But his choice to save us was his choice to set his love upon us in Christ, according to Ephesians 2, while we were still his enemies. This is the amazing reality of our salvation. We didn't seek him out and win him over by our change of mind toward him. That didn't happen for any of you, any of us. It has never happened. It will never happen. It's not the way salvation unfolds in anybody. He chose in eternity to set his love upon us who would be his enemies and who would fight and resist and reject and despise his grace time and time again day after day year after year as it was held out to us in the word preached and in his people bearing witness and in life circumstances and even in the common graces all around us in creation. In the process of our natural disposition of resistance and rejection God remained faithful to his eternal decree to set his love upon us and save us. So Paul says, rightly, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, you who are among those loved by God from eternity because God chose to save you from eternity. Having the right order as to how it went down. For you, produces the kind of thankfulness that he describes here and back in chapter one, and I think all throughout his letters. The fact that God chose to overcome my incessant resistance and rejection of him and his truth and set his love upon me, upon you, for our salvation when we were his outspoken enemies is cause for constant and continual outpouring of thanksgiving and praise and just to try to to try to keep this passage distinct from 1 Timothy 1 where he's going with this here is to be united to a body of believers where the same divine Love and mercy are on display as cause for even greater constant and continual praise. To learn each other's stories and who we were before what Paul describes here caught up to us and cornered us and clinched us. And the way it went down for each one of us uniquely and distinctly. Nobody would ever respond to such evidence and say to another person, Good job. Nice work. The way our salvation is always described in the Bible removes any possibility for that kind of a response, either internally as we reflect on our own story or externally as we observe the mercy of God at work to seek out and save his beloved from eternity, which is why thankfulness for it is both warm, not cold, and obligatory not optional and those two terms are completely harmonious and not contradictory at all so he, he he's just grounded thankfulness toward God from those loved by God not in our choice to love God but in God's choice to set his love upon us from eternity when he chose to save us so we ought to give thanks because God has chosen us from the beginning to salvation. But then he states the way it happened in just real space and, and time, which only further grounds our praise in God's work and not our own. So let's proceed. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning. To salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth are two sides of the same coin. The detail that I somewhat feel the need to clarify is the weighty word here, sanctification. Because we've been using it in a very specific way all throughout 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Always, up until now, referring to the the progressive work of the Spirit in those whom he indwells to make his own holy and prepare them to stand blameless before Christ at his coming. And this occurrence of the word certainly includes that. But I want to suggest to you this morning that the emphasis here is on the beginning of that work of the spirit. In other words. If his work to sanctify is to set you apart for God and make you holy through the means of grace by which he does so throughout your life daily in your life. This usage here emphasizes his initial setting you apart. In other words, his role in your redemption, which was to apply the finished work of Christ on your behalf as the elect of God and rescue you from your sin and your unbelief by regenerating you and creating warm, joyful faith in what was then your cold, joyless heart. In the next two statements that Paul makes, I think, backs that up because the other side of the coin of the spirit's role in setting you apart is in his regenerating work in you is to create in you what you did not have before and what you would not have without him, which Ephesians two, eight through 10 describes as a gift from God to you, your faith a blood-bought, purchased by Christ on the cross, gift of faith that is distributed to you by the Holy Spirit when he regenerated you. At the precise moment in which he did his initial sanctifying work, claiming you, setting you apart for God, he also overcame your natural unbelief and opened your eyes to see and softened your heart to believe the truth that you despised and rejected all life long up to that point. He chose to save us by the Spirit's sanctifying work and by our belief in the truth two sides of the same coin. And the reason this news is cause for Thanksgiving is because it is all his gift to his beloved and it was purchased at the cost of the death of Christ for us. But he proceeds to go into even more detail as to how this happened. So we ought always to give thanks to God. Why? Because he chose to set his love on us in eternity. And the way his eternal choice to love us in Christ played itself out in actually saving us in real space and time was through the sanctifying work of the Spirit which resulted in our belief in the truth. But now in verse 14... He zooms even more closely in and says to this salvation, he called us again, grounding our salvation in eternity, but locating it in the sanctifying work of the spirit when we began to believe the truth. But when did that happen? Verse 14 says it happened when he called you. When did he call you? Goes on to say he called you through our gospel. So God chose to set his love upon you for your salvation in eternity. And he chose to bring that about in space and time through the work of the spirit in you to regenerate you to overcome your natural unbelief with the gift of faith that was paid for in the blood of Christ. And he did that in coordination with his call upon you, which came to you through the good news of the gospel as it was preached to you, bore witness to you. And that is how he saved you. That's how he saves everybody. That's how this church was formed, ultimately. By God being faithful to his choice in eternity to set his love in Christ upon the people in this room. Of all different backgrounds, from different places, with different baggage to overcome all at different ages, to save us and to bring us at this time in history together in this town, to be this church, Christ Fellowship, so that we might be filled with thankful praise as we reflect on His sovereign majesty in doing this, and as we anticipate being for eternity what we miraculously have begun to be in this life which is as we'll see reflections of or sharers in in as much as we are pointers to the end of verse 14 the glory of our lord jesus christ this is again first timothy one where paul said god save me so that in what he has done in me, the perfections of Christ would be on display for all to see. Here, the perfect patience of Christ that Paul references in 1 Timothy 1 is described as his glory that is on display in everyone he saves because it's the same story always, just with different details. But the details never detract Or distract. But rather magnify. The irreplaceable elements of the story. For every one of us. Which is he chose to love us and save us. And he did it by himself in that he chose. Christ died. The spirit affected. All for the purpose of displaying his eternal perfections. In his work on our behalf. Do I even have to say again. But we ought always to give thanks. To God for this. For this work in me. In you. In us. But in the remainder of our passage this morning Paul moves on from thankfulness. It might sound strange, but he moves on from thankfulness, not, not in any way implying that thankfulness is immature or inferior, but he moves on from thankfulness because thankfulness alone does not combat what was assaulting this church which was lies and deception. So rehearsing the gospel does not only lead to warm and thankful hearts, but according to our passage, it is also producing and calling all of us to verse 15. He says, So then, brothers, stand Firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And I want to be careful to to note, don't be confused or thrown off by the word traditions there. I, I would like to think that it's obvious to us that Paul's not using it in a way as to override or contradict or over. Rule the gospel that he's just rehearsed. He's obviously not doing that. But I just want to be clear that the traditions that he's referring to is the gospel that's been passed down. All the way from the beginning. I I think what he's doing here is he's grounding the gospel not as something new in him. He's being careful to do that. Because that's the accusation against him and the apostles. So he's careful here to ground the gospel. Not as something new in him or in the apostles. But in something very old. Something ultimately as old as eternity. But in place from the beginning in promises and covenants. And While most of their history missed it. By God's electing grace, some didn't, because the gospel did save in Israel, and at times outside of Israel, and when Jesus came, he made clear that the gospel of his death and resurrection was the plan from eternity, and it is the message from the beginning So Paul now rehearses it once again for his readers and he calls them based upon it to stand firm and to hold on to it for the sake of their own perseverance and for the sake of their children. Recognizing that it is an unbelievable gift of God's grace to be raised in a believing home and in a believing church in a home and in a church in which God's mercy and grace have been and continue to be outpoured and parents and church members who've become the recipients of mercy for their salvation. He says, stand firm and hold on, not so that the gospel dies with you and somehow you feel like a warrior for holding on. He says, stand firm and hold on so that the grace of God in the gospel might continue to save in your midst. You all the way up to the end and your children and others any whom God might entrust to our care in the life of this church. And wh- while the language, stand firm, and hold on, probably most naturally coordinates with the charge, don't be deceived, keep believing. Verses 16 and 17 reveal the um, offensive side of that coin. In the process of stand firm, hold fast. In other words, don't be deceived. Keep believing. Verses 16 and 17 end with a prayer from Paul for the church. That God might not only keep giving the grace of, he says here, eternal comfort and good hope, but then he goes on to say, but strength for every good thing gospel work we do and every gospel word we speak And I think it goes without saying that the expectation here is that a church that rightly understands the mercy that God has extended to its members in planning and perfectly executing the salvation of their souls will be a church that overflows with rightful, warm, delightful thankfulness as we look into the mirror and look out at each other. A church that works tirelessly to preserve this gospel for ourselves and for our children. And a church that plots and plans and sacrifices and strategizes for gospel works and gospel words that keep the perfections of Jesus on display. And invite others to join in and pray that God might shower down his mercy through us again and again and again toward his elect within our reach so that mercy might triumph over judgment in others just as it has in us. Which is the end to which I will now pray if you'll join me. Let's pray. Father, we give you many thanks for your word. We give you many thanks for your word because it tells us the story again and again and again, over and over and over, from beginning to end, the same Mm -hmm. story. Your electing grace, your faithfulness to your eternal choice to save, to send Christ to die the death he died, to raise him from the dead, to dispatch your spirit, to apply what Christ bought towards your elect for our salvation so that Jesus would be on display through us day by day by day generation after generation after generation that others might be brought in and that in the process you might build your church which will stand blameless before Christ when he returns. We're so glad that we're a part of it. We're so glad that we're a part of it individually. We're so glad that we're a part of it corporately together with this group The stories that are told here, Lord, magnify your grace. So give us humility mixed with boldness. To be actively out in our world telling the story by which you are pleased to bring others in. And Lord, bring others in here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.